The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. Good morning. My name is Rick. I am one of the elders here, and I have the privilege of bringing God's word to you today. So today, we're going to continue our series in Revelation. So if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, please turn to Revelation 3. Revelation 3. We're working through the letters to the seven churches. And this week, we're on the fifth letter, the letter to Sardis. The message to, the message to Sardis is harsh. As we read this letter, just imagine what it was like for Sardis to get it. But let's also remember that Jesus has provided all the letters for our benefit as well. And in light of that, there may be something important for us to hear here in this, in this letter. So before we read, let's pray, and then Alan will come to read the letter for us. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we turn to your word for us today, we ask that you open our eyes, show us your truth, open your word to us, and open us to your word. Amen. Alan, passage for us. And the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remained and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Alan. There are seven letters, seven letters to the churches, to seven churches in Revelation. All of the letters were read to all of the churches. And as the Sardis letter was read to the other six, I'll bet they were thinking, you know, we heard some really hard things in the letters to us, but we're not Sardis. <laughs> the message to Sardis was hard to hear. Everyone wanted to know, what is going on in Sardis? What was so bad that Jesus said, if they don't repent, he will come against them. Don't you want to know? I do. Because these words are for Sardis, but they're also for us. They're for the church everywhere for all time. Verse 6 says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I think at this point, Jesus has our ear, and we're listening. 
There's a big problem in Sardis. And Jesus commands them to wake up, repent, and be faithful. And I think that's what he's also saying to us today. Wake up, repent, and be faithful. Might be helpful for us to look at this letter in two sections. One section, the first, describes the problems that are in Sardis. And then we go to look at the faithful few who aren't part of the problem. So what is the problem in Sardis? Jesus makes it very clear to them. He tells them, your works are incomplete. Verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you were dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Jesus says, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Your works are incomplete. And something about incomplete works makes them spiritually dead. So at this point, you're, you're probably asking yourself three questions. First, who is he talking to? Are they Christians or are they not Christians? Second, how do incomplete works make you dead? And third, what does he even mean by works? So let's start with the first question. Who is he talking to? Now let me ask you, when you saw the word dead, did something in you jump up and say, oh, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. The problem is, these people are not Christians. They are dead, right? They are dead, and they need to be made alive by the Holy Spirit. Well, that might be true for some who attend the church in Sardis. But let me ask you this. If they're dead, if they're not Christians, have you ever heard Jesus show any concern for the works of people who aren't Christians? And if they aren't Christians, why would he tell them to strengthen what remains? No, my friends, no. I, 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 think, I think we're not let off the hook here. These are Christians. And these Christians are dead because of incomplete works. So that brings us to the second question. How do incomplete works make you dead? And this one makes us a little nervous, doesn't it? Maybe a little afraid that uh, some of the basic things we know about Scripture and our relationship with Christ might be challenged here. And we, we fight so hard, we fight so hard to comprehend the means of our salvation. We remind ourselves constantly that we can't work for our salvation. Our salvation comes only by faith and faith in Christ alone. It is a gift from God. And that's so clearly said in scriptures. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 tells us clearly, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. Yes, we are saved as a gift of God through faith. We cannot earn it through our works. But we shouldn't stop there. Let's read the very next verse. The very next verse says, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So yes, we are saved by faith. But coming to faith in Jesus Christ is supposed to change you. It is the purpose for why you were created and why God saved you. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And a Christian who begins with faith in Christ but does not show any change in the way they live, well, that's a problem. James 2.26 says, everybody with me now, Faith without works is very good. And there we go. Faith without works is dead. The church in Sardis is full of dead Christians. And they're dead because their works are incomplete. There are people who claim the name of Christ, but their lives just, just don't show it. So we have to get to the next question. What What does he even mean by works? What does he mean by works? And if we aren't careful here, we might make the mistake of applying a legalistic framework, one that really doesn't come from the Bible. See, our natural tendency is to think we can fix incomplete works by just doing more acts of service, right? That's not the idea that Jesus is trying to convey here. That's not it. The works, the works that Jesus identifies as incomplete are closely connected with the Holy Spirit. Now we see that by by how Jesus introduces himself in verse one. He introduces himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. By now we know The seven spirits of God is a symbolic way to speak of the Holy Spirit. Now, in each of the seven letters, each of the seven letters, there is an opening introduction. And that opening introduction in every letter foreshadows what Jesus is going to address in his letter to the church. So for Sardis, he's going to address their rejection or suppression of the Holy Spirit in their lives and in their church. Now, when I say that, some might interpret that as suppressing certain gifts like tongues or prophecy, but I think we're really talking about something much, much more basic here. Much more basic. See, when... When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. 
And when he indwells you, he begins the work of changing what you love. And when he changes what you love, that works its way out in what you do. It's the Spirit's work that convicts us of sin, empowers us to resist sin, and bears good fruit in our lives. The Holy Spirit changes you when you let him. You, you can resist the work of the Holy Spirit in your life by being in constant and unrepentant sin. Let me say that again. You can resist the work of the Holy Spirit in your life by living in constant and unrepentant sin. You can do it as a new Christian, or you can be a Christian for many, many years And then begin that destructive pattern. But either way, resistance to the Holy Spirit makes you dead. Jesus gives us the remedy for this in verse 3. Let's look at that. Remember then, what you received and heard, keep it and repent. Jesus is calling them to remember what they received and heard when the gospel came to them. What was that? What did they need to remember? And when did that happen? Well, about 40 years before this letter was written, the people of Sardis first heard the gospel from none other than Paul. He taught in Ephesus for two years, and Acts 19 tells us that all the residents of Asia, including those in Sardis, Heard the word of the Lord there. Several years later, Paul describes that time in his life. And in Acts 26, he tells us, I declared to the Gentiles this, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So paraphrasing a little. Repent of your sin, Turn to God and trust Jesus for your salvation and then live like it. Live like it. Those are your works. Live like it. The church heard this and accepted that message 40 years ago, but something something has changed. And now Jesus says, you are dead. Your works are incomplete. Now, now, They only have a reputation of being alive. They have a reputation. So what, let me ask you, what gives the church a reputation of being alive? We surveyed 100 people from Bible-believing churches in San Diego and asked them, what makes a church alive? Top three answers are on the board. Survey says, okay, okay, we really didn't do that, but... (laughs) I got it from the internet, but I think this is accurate. Attractive programs for all ages. Engaging preaching and awesome music. And I think if you ask people coming out of church today, what makes a church alive, that's the answer you would get from most of them. The top three, attractive programs for all ages, engaging preaching, and 
awesome music. And those are all good things. A church that does those things might well be serving their people well. Problem? The problem is that you can do all those things completely apart from the Holy Spirit. A church that does those things well might attract a crowd. They might appear alive, but that church could still be spiritually dead. Now, we like, we like our celebrity preachers, don't we? We love our celebrity preachers. We listen to them on podcasts. Well, the ancient Greek culture, they were more obsessed with them. And Sardis, well, they probably had the best. Lots of activity and great speakers gave the impression of life in that church in Sardis. Now, let me describe Sardis. The people in Sardis, people in Sardis were rich. They were well-educated. They were cultured. And the church was relatively free. So they had the resources and the ability to do things that make a good impression. So what's the problem here? That freedom, that freedom came with a price. Verse four tells us that only a few people in Sardis have not soiled their garments. And that phrase reveals something about the rest of the Christians in Sardis. It reveals that they practiced a little idol worship at some level. Worshiping idols. You get the picture here? A rich, successful group of people, they don't want to rock the boat in their city. Participating just a little, just a little idol worship, keeps us engaged with our community. It keeps our head down so the Romans, they don't bother us. The church in Sardis, they, they, weren't, they weren't persecuted as badly as other churches. They weren't suffering. They weren't poor. They weren't being thrown in prison. There's no false teaching or sexual immorality reported here. These were nice people. These were nice people who were succeeding in life. And to the surrounding churches, Sardis was doing it right. They had the reputation for being alive. But Jesus saw through that. He saw a church that had compromised their witness. He saw a church that had compromised their witness in order to live their best life now. They gave up exclusive worship of God to acquire wealth, comfort, and reputation. Maybe they even thought that a good reputation was a good thing. It might even attract people to their church. But this pattern of unrepentant sin did something to them. This pattern of unrepented sin, of idol worship, made them spiritually dead. And it led Jesus to say, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Your works 
are incomplete. Worse yet, they didn't even know it. They don't seem to be aware that they are spiritually dead. Jesus has to tell them, wake up. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. He says in verse 3, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I come against you. What kind of warning is this? Is Jesus going to destroy them if they don't repent? Probably, probably he will come against them as a form of discipline. A discipline that will drive them back to faithfulness. See, Jesus coming against them will be in love. But it won't be pleasant. It would be much better for them to repent and become faithful to what they have seen and heard. Let's go back to idol worship for a second. When I told you that the people in Sardis were worshiping idols, did you breathe a sigh of relief? <laughs> I mean, really, really, this was getting all very, very serious, and it was kind of hitting a little too close to home. Some of the descriptions really do sound a lot like us, don't they? Relatively free, wealthy, Well, thankfully, I, I don't think any of us has a little shrine with a wooden statue at home. We do have idols, don't we? We have idols in our heart. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. We can make an idol out of anything, especially good things. Our popularity at school might be an idol. Our reputation in the church might be an idol. Our politics, our marriage, or even the idea that we have to be married. Idols help us gain comfort, significance, and security apart from God. And any good thing, any good thing can be made into an ultimate thing. A, any good thing can become an idol that we worship. How can you tell if you've made a good thing into an idol? A lot of ways to tell, but I'll just ask two questions. First, are you willing to disobey God to get it? That's an idol. Second, if you don't get it, does it make you angry? Everyone, everyone, Christian or not, has idols. Everyone. The difference for the Christian is that we recognize them as sin. We may be prompted by the Holy Spirit to, to confess our attraction to idols. And we repent so that nothing in our lives becomes more ultimate than our God. But I have to admit, I, I'm just going to admit to you, there is a temptation. There is a temptation in my life to not to do this. 
Sometimes I want to hold on to my idols. I refuse to acknowledge the problem. Sometimes I'm just, just lazy or forgetful. Is that just me? I didn't think so. I think that's a lot of us. Is identifying sin and repenting of it requires humility and intentionality. But it's important. Many of us who've been Christians for a long time, we're tempted to know a lot about Jesus. We're tempted to know a lot about Jesus and cultivate our reputation as mature Christians. But maybe we're also tempted not to do the hard work of examining our own hearts. Maybe we resist the Holy Spirit with our constant unrepentant sin. And if we resist the Holy Spirit for long, and it becomes a pattern or a habit in our life, it can lead to a dead spiritual life. So I need to ask, how long has it been? How long has it been since you've looked into your own heart and identified specific sin in your life and repented? You know it's there, right? You know it's there. How long has it been since you really prayed and sought God, identified sin, and repented of that to God? And if you can't remember how long it's been, today would be a good day to start. That brings us It brings us to the faithful few. The faithful few. Verse 4. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and will never blot his name. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He says, there are a few in Sardis, a few who have remained faithful. People who do not worship idols, people who publicly identify with Christ and their lives show it. They did not suppress their witness to get ahead in this pagan culture. And these people identified with Christ to their own detriment. I'm sure they paid a price, both economically and socially, for standing out as different. Now, this section section might seem a little confusing. He talks about conquering white garments and a book of life. So let's, let's take them one at a time. The one who conquers. The one who conquers. Conquering, conquering is interesting, especially in Revelation. Conquering might not look exactly as you imagine. 
It might not look like going to war and winning a battle. A lot of conquering in Revelation involves dying. Christ was said to have conquered through his death on the cross. That's conquering. Conquering means identifying with Christ in his suffering and being faithful, even to death. Conquering understands that our best life isn't now. Our best life comes when we are resurrected to be with Jesus because there are rewards in heaven for those who conquer. Just in the first chapters of Revelation, we've been told those who conquer will eat from the tree of life in paradise. They will be given eternal blessings and rewards. Dan told us last week that those who conquer will rule with Christ and be given authority over the nations. And finally today, those who conquered will be clothed in white garments. White garments, what does that mean? Well, having white garments in the kingdom of heaven is an honor. It is a symbol of purity. The faithful few, they have them. They walk with Jesus in white, for they are worthy. Sin stains those garments. So we have to ask, what about us? What does that mean for us? We know that we are not perfectly faithful. We know we sin. So what do our garments look like? And Revelation 7 tells us that Christians will stand before the throne of God in white garments because, because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How do the robes become white? They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So you're not perfect. No one is except Jesus. But your robes are clean because Jesus died on the cross for you and rose from the dead. Jesus spilled his own blood because that was the price for you to stand before the throne of God in white garments. You who have put your trust in Christ and repented for your sins, you will stand before the throne of God with white robes of purity, not because you are good, but because Jesus is good. You walk in white with Jesus and you were called worthy because he is worthy. You have put your trust in him to forgive your sins. And there's even more good news here. Your name your name is written in the book of life. He says in verse five, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. Those who repent and turn to Jesus in faith have their names in the book of life and will never be blotted out. And when you stand before the throne of God in those white robes, Jesus says that he will confess your name before the Father and before his angels. That, my friends, is the best news that anyone can hear. So how about you? 
Is your name in the book of life? Are you confident that when you stand before the throne of God, that Jesus will confess your name? What you do in this life matters. We can see in this beautiful book that there is a kingdom, a place that awaits those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Now, if you're here and you're feeling a draw to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, you can do that right now. Where you sit, you may ask Jesus for forgiveness for your sins. And he promises he promises he will not turn away any who sincerely come to him. So I urge you to come to Christ even right now. Surrender to him and hope in him. When you stand before the throne of God, let Christ confess your name to the Father. Let's pray. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. And as we begin to pray, I'd like to invite the band to come back, and the servers, please, come prepare. Gracious Father, we thank you for this letter. Even though this letter is hard to hear, your words cause us to reflect on our lives. Where we have not been faithful, we are sincerely sorry, and we repent. We are grateful for your forgiveness and your loving kindness toward your children. Jesus, we thank you that we can rely upon you to confess our names before the Father and that our names will never be blotted out of the book of life. That is so comforting. We pray for anyone here who does not have that assurance. Spirit, please open their heart and mind to your truth and your grace today. Help us all to see you are all we have. We are grateful to you for your love to us, expressed most tangibly by your death on the cross, and we take these elements. As we take these elements, we thank you for this glorious picture of so great a love, that Jesus, our Savior, loved his people and gave himself up for his people to position us before you holy and without blemish. Help us now to give thanks, believing the good news as we take the bread and the cup together. It is in your son's name, Jesus Christ, that we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.